My name is Alan Chen. You're listening to the Us People podcast. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Us People podcast. I'm your host, Savvy Rocks, and today I'm humbled to have Alan here, who is an author and a social media activist. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, it's a great joy to be with you and to see your lovely smiling face <laughs> on, on, my, on my laptop. Sorry, you can't be any nearer than you are. <laughs> I love that, Alan. <laughs> That's perfect. So... What I do when I usually start a podcast is I always ask the guest a little bit about their background. So, Alan, if you don't mind telling us a little bit about your background, where you grew up and how that influenced you to become the person you are today. Well, I grew up in Sunderland, which ah. was then a, a working class town um, in Sunderland. My family was very much into retail furnishing. And when I was growing up, the thing I thought I really do not want to get involved with is retail furnishing. I thought it would be terribly, terribly boring. I want to be a lawyer. I think I'd be a good lawyer. Uh, and so I qualified. I got myself to Oxford, got a degree in jurisprudence, yeah. and I went and I went to the bar in Manchester. And I was a barrister for three years. Oh they say once a barrister, always a barrister. Yeah. But anyway. I stuck it out for three years. Um, but, uh, well, I was also very keen on the Liberal Party at that time. Joe Grimmond was my great hero. And uh, I had an opportunity to become the right-hand man of the Secretary of the Liberal Party in London uh, when he was bringing the Liberal Party into the 20th century, halfway through it. And um, at that time... Um, I thought we were going to break the mold of British politics. Well, we didn't yeah. quite get away with it. Um, so anyway, <laughs> my, my, my job was to organize the annual conference of the party and also uh, to look after the national executive and council of the party. So it was quite an interesting job, and I enjoyed it. And the great thing for me at that time was I was introduced to graphic art because uh, at that time, this guy I was working for introduced me to a man called Bartley Powell, who was the, the the art designer, and all the printing stuff went via this guy. And that's when I started to learn how important visual presentation yes. was to anything. So that was a great benefit to me. But after three years, as I realized that I was, it was really involved in a dialogue between filing cabinets because people would pass resolutions very earnestly, and I would pass the minister, the minister would thank me for them, and, you know, those things would go into filing cabinets. Uh, but meanwhile, my mother uh, was keeping the family business on the road, and my father had cancer. So I decided that really I ought to go back to the northeast of England, where I started from, even though when I was... Young, I wanted to get as far away from the northeast as I possibly could. So, in, in that sense, things did not go according to original plan. And then I'd go into this family business, and um, for a while I had a good stab at it. And then in 1973, 73 was a difficult year in furniture and in business generally. It was uh, there was an economic crisis at that time, and. Uh, Friends of mine told me that I was wasting my time doing it the way I was doing it. Uh, they said that trade is going out of town, it's going discount, and you need a manager. I said, I'm the manager. And uh, they said, no, you're not, you're the owner. So they helped me to, to hire a manager. And I got this guy on board who was actually managing a very good store in in Sunderland, and he gave up this store to open up a sweet supermarket oh. in a very grotty building which I had available at the time. And, uh, well, it, that was the beginning of it all because after that, the thing took off. Oh. And, and uh, we opened up what was called the Sunderland Sweet Centre, and then that became 
SCS, which is Sweet Sentosas. And, and this guy was brilliant at managing, but I still had a job myself to do. There was the world of computers, the world of marketing, the world of advertising, finding new sites and so on. And so we grew this company over the next few years in the northeast of England. And I grew it as far as it would go in the northeast of England. Yeah. Now, we've got no kids, although I've got quite a lot of young people around in our lives, so I'm not starved of youngsters at all. And, and they give me keep me feeling young, but that's a separate issue. Anyway, the long and the short of it is that by the time I was 60, we'd grown it as far as I could grow it in the northeast. And, but it was a very good formula. And on the strength of that, I sold it on a management buyout ah. to the guy I'd hired. So he, 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 I paid him more than I was getting myself in the first place. And to this day onwards, he's, he's earned more than I've ever earned because he then took the company and did what he wanted to do with it, grew it, and it's now a national company. Oh, my gosh. And it's got a 1,000 employees nationwide. and But... I decided that ghosts shouldn't hang around, so I've got no financial interest in it at all. But the nice story I can tell you about that is that my mother brought into the company a young girl called Leslie Sheraton. Now, Leslie Sheraton became a clerk, and then she became my PA. Then she became PA to my successor. And now she is a company secretary of this company, oh and she's still there. And I was present at her birthday party recently when I was invited to it, and it was really rather nice. And I've still got my connection with the company. I was invited to an event where we we renewed uh, a celebration. Uh, well, we re it was actually retirement of somebody that I knew when I was working in the company. Yeah. And we did a This Is Your Life for this guy. And uh, what happened was he was presented in the 1980s with the Salesman's of the Year Award. So we presented to him again. Oh, that's <laughs> anyway, cool. I like I say, that. <laughs> that was my, 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 my life, which gave me a hell of a lot of pleasure, yeah. even though, as I said, I didn't expect that it would, but it shows you how when you're young, you don't necessarily see things uh, as they are. You Anyway, that was that. And then my life then took off in a different direction entirely, because you said that I was a social media activist. Well, I'll explain how that happened. I belong to the Sunderland Rotary Club. Now, I know you may think that well, a lot of people think that Rotary is a rather a, a fuddy-duddy sort of setup, middle-class fuddy-duddy setup. Well, for me, it's been anything but that. And the reason why is because in the Sunderland Rotary Club, there was a guy called Fredwin Haynes. Sadly, he's no longer alive. And he was the head teacher of a special school for physically disabled kids with a learning difficulty. And he invited me, first of all, to be the governor of this school and then to be the chairman of governors. And I had really not very much to do with making that school a success. He made it a success because he was fantastic and he had a great team of staff around him. And it was a, it was a, a wonderful experience for me. And in a strange sort of a way, what happened took me over more even than my own company. And that's saying something because I was so impressed by what was going on in that school for those kids and how they were reacting to it. But the tragedy was that the flavor of the times, and it's a big story this, the flavor of the times was to close schools like this and for the kids to go mainstream, thinking that the kids had a right to mainstream education. Well, the truth be told that in this school, it was so good that the parents, the teachers, the carers and the kids themselves didn't want that. They just liked this school. And when the director of education called a meeting to say, look, we've got good news for you. You're going to go mainstream. There was a vote and not one single hand went up in favor ah. of that. And the fact is that there was then a campaign and I was able, because of my background, to help the campaign along a bit. And it was quite a, quite a powerful campaign. And, uh, we got 10,000 people saying they wanted the school to continue. 
and gave good reasons for it. And the result was that the school is alive to this day. Now, but, there was a but. We didn't, we annoyed the local authority because we spoiled their plans. And they, in fact, were really rather nasty. And they, I won't go into details about this, it's ancient history, but they orchestrated a sting to discredit the governors and make the parents pay £60,000 for their kids' education, which is highly illegal. Uh, anyway, I was so annoyed by that that I stayed on as governor until I could, so I, re, I resigned as chairman, but I stayed on as governor until I could see exactly what they'd done. And then I tried to complain. But the trouble with the UK is that they don't like you to complain against things that are the really national policy. So um, the officer didn't want to know the local government onward didn't want to know and I took it all the way up to the uh, audit commission and they didn't want to know so I was so annoyed by all of that that I did something which really surprised me no end I wrote a play called Death of a Nightingale which is what you'll have spotted and uh, and this was really putting onto the stage what I thought was the play uh, what was the thought, rather, was the school uh, tried to capture the mood of the school in the play. And in fact, the narrator in the play uh, is called Tracy in the play, but it's a real-life person, and it's called Ashley Ritchie, now Ashley Watts. And Ashley Ritchie is my great heroine because she was a most wonderful person when she was at school. She helped the campaign. And to this day, she's a most wonderful person. We Aww. were lucky enough to be invited to her wedding. <laughs> and just to give you some indication, the sort of person that Ashley is, yep. Yep. she's in a wheelchair. And she, in fact, takes her husband to, to be to dance city in order to teach him how to dance with a girl in a wheelchair on her wedding day. See? So anyway, Ros and I go to her wedding relatively recently, and it's very interesting because at her wedding day, she um, is surrounded not by so much by her family, but by her teachers. And she... And in fact, it, there's a big message there, you see, because it shows you what education should really be about. What education should be about is self-esteem. And she, she's not sorry for herself. She's very comfortable in her own skin. She does, she's, she's actually married somebody who's good at software. She's got her own website called Richability. And, and she is one hell of a smashing girl. So... That has yielded to me a great dividend in my life, which I enjoy to this day. However, there is another but. I am now living in Newcastle. I lived in Sunderland for 30-odd years, and then we, my wife had lived in Newcastle. Newcastle, um, uh, I don't know, you may not know the Northeast, but Newcastle is about 13 miles from Sunderland. Yeah. But there but they don't like each other, especially on the football field. Oh. <laughs> uh, in fact, they hate each other on the football field. <laughs> anyway, we're now living very close to where my wife grew up. She also, for her part, she wanted to leave the, nor leave the Northeast. She's come back to the Northeast. We're absolutely delighted that we've ended up here. Anyway, I've left Sunderland after 30-odd years, and I'm now applying for naturalization in Newcastle, which is not all that easy to get, I can tell you. Because, you, because I'm still from Sunderland, you see. <laughs> but, but never mind. I'm in, I'm in Newcastle now, and I suddenly get myself another thing to fight. The flavour of the times, especially in London, which you'll know about, is the bicycle. Everybody wants to ride a bicycle. Now, I've got to tell you that in Newcastle, very few people ride bicycles. And in Sunderland, scarcely anybody rides bicycles. And the reason is that really, I think a lot of the reason is the weather. The weather isn't very kind up here. It's a bit, it's about five degrees colder. 
the, the wind does blow from time to time. And of course, we've got our share of potholes, I guess. So at all events, there are very few cycles, but at all events, there was a, a plan to put cycle lanes on my local high street, which was absolutely the wrong place for cycle lanes. So I start a campaign. Well, I don't start a campaign. I join a campaign, to be fair to it. And I don't want to talk too much about that. I mean, that, that uh, again, I think, I can think probably because I stirred it, that little bit of cycle lane has never taken place. Ah. But unfortunately, what I actually spotted was that, and this is crazy, that the, 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 the country has put a, a charity called Sustrans in charge of urban planning. Now, urban planning should be handled by professionals. Yes. But they, in fact, want to orchestrate more people to switch from a car to a bike to get clean air. Well, all I know is in this part of the world, that's never going to work. And really what should be happening is what should be happening is we should be preparing uh, for the new revolution with electric vehicles. And that means the emphasis now should be on uh, fast charges for electric cars. Anyway, that's another thing, but that's another story. And I think I've talked enough to give you what I'm to give you some idea of what I've been up to. Uh, but <laughs> all I can tell you is that what my life is about is about people. Yes, I have. We Same. absolutely love personal relationships. It's been the story of my life. The friendship is the where riches lie more than anything else. And we've got a whole host of friends. Some of them are in London. Some of them are in America. Some of them are in this part of the world. But that's what helps to make our life really worth living at this stage of it. Well, that's perfect. I love the stories. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but, uh, the, but the other thing is, and I know you want to talk about jobs and things like that. There are one or two things that I can I think, say, constructively to people who are actually struggling with this COVID virus thing. Um, because, as I say, at the outset, life for us is relatively straightforward as long as we are happy to live within four walls very largely, which we are. Uh, but I know for a lot of young people especially, uh, this is a hell of a thing and not easy to deal with. Yeah. Um, and uh, I feel very sorry for anybody who's trapped in that, where the careers are being thwarted by it, exams, problems with exams, and all the rest of it. And uh, there's an adage which I used to know, which was when the, the going gets rough, or tough rather, when the going gets, gets tough, tough, the tough, tough gets, gets going. going. Yeah. And uh, you really have got to take as positive a view as you can of the present situation and try and turn it, if you can, to advantage. I mean, there was a time when I actually got tuberculosis, believe it or not. I got TB when I was young because my aunt, I'm Jewish, by the way, and my aunt took in a, a refugee from Germany. And uh, he, he taught me chess, uh, which I still enjoy to this day. Anyway, this guy, I'm playing, sitting opposite to him, and I catch TB. Um, and I go to Oxford, and I'm caught on a mass X-ray. And fortunately, at that time, there are treatments for it. There's drugs for it and treatments for it. But I go to a, a, a sanatorium in Northumberland for a few months, and I lose a year. But I teach myself to type. Ah, and, yeah. uh, of course, keyboarding now. And, of course, my goodness me, has that been of help ever since, you see. <laughs> So <laughs> I've now lost the art of writing. <laughs> it's very difficult for me to, well, my wife as well, we can't read each other's writing, never mind our own. Uh, so, uh, because she's the same, because she also types away. Uh, we just have a battle to see who uses the, the computer, she or me, but that's a separate problem, <laughs> which I won't go into. <laughs> but at all events, what I'm trying to say to you, you see what I'm trying to say to you, don't you? Yeah. That, 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 that if you can, if you can use your time to advantage, and, and you know, and the other thing I'll just say, if if I could keep keep this conversation going along these lines, mm. um, I great, 
I've tried to simplify things out quite a lot in my own mind. And I think when it comes to living, there are two sides to living. One side is the reward side, and the other side is the satisfaction side. Now, the the thing is, I've been very lucky, I think you've gathered that, because I've been able to get both of them working for me. And the reward side is there for the taking, because I told you that I've been involved with, um, I've told you I've been involved with special educational needs. Well, the other thing I've been involved with is care for the elderly, because I've also been the chair of a care home, a small care home in Newcastle. Started out in Sunderland and then took over in Newcastle. Now, again, that's where I've seen the satisfaction side of life in both those areas of activity. So I've seen work, people working in these areas. The um, I've seen um, people working in special needs. I've seen people working in a care home. They may not have get got the, the highest rewards that are going, but most certainly they've had enormous satisfaction in their life doing what they do. And, and I've had enormous satisfaction being close to them in doing it. And the other thing that I would say in relation to that is the other thing I've seen is the importance of management. It was important in my own business, finding a good manager. And certainly in this care home in Newcastle, there was a lady called Christine McNicholas, and she was the manager for 17 years of that care home. And I take no credit for the way that was running because she managed it and she kept the staff loyal and she had them focused. And, and again, it was really, really good management that did it. Now, what I want to say about that, I think, has also a degree of importance for young people. People are told that the key to life is getting a degree. Well, now, I've got to say that sometimes it does help. But sometimes there's something much more important than a degree. Um, one thing that's important is street wisdom, being streetwise. Yes. It's much better, in my view, my experience, it's much better to be streetwise than bookwise. And I think a lot of our problems, I suspect, in Whitehall is there are a lot of clever people around, but they're not always streetwise. <laughs> and, and they should be. Uh, they should, and I don't think they necessarily are. Now, in my experience, we employed managers, and the best managers, they started out in the warehouse, they worked their way up as salesmen, they became managers, and ultimately they became super managers, if you like. Uh, there was a career structure. And the other thing is that I know the temptation is to progress your career and move on. But sometimes it's not a bad thing to have commitment. And you invest your future in a company and the future invests its future in them. So I, I commend that as a formula to think about. I know you do want to improve. People do need to move on in their lives. But Sometimes the ladder, the best ladder, is in your own company. And I see today the people today that have been, haven't been involved in SCS now for, for 20 years or so, but I see people there today who were there when I was there. So that's the formula. Part of their strength has been continuity. Yes. And that, don't underestimate continuity for a company and don't underestimate continuity for individual careers. So that's another little bit of homespun wisdom. I love that. That makes. Tell me a little right. bit about social media, the pros and cons of social media. The social, the, well, I've got to tell you, if you're like hitting your head against a brick wall, this is a really, really good way to do it. <laughs> Why do you no, say that? No, 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 no. There's a story that's told of the, of the little Jew who mm. goes to Jerusalem and is seen year after year praying at the Wailing Wall, you know? Mm -hmm. And somebody says to this guy, Tell me, see, wherever I come here, you're praying, well, what's it like? Praying at the wall, what do you get out of it? Says, I'll tell you exactly what it's like. It's like praying to a wall. 
Have you got the message? Yeah, definitely got the message. I've got to tell you, I mean, basically, I mean, I've got, I've got, fortunately, I've got time on my hands. Yes. And and basically, certain things get to me. And so if it does nothing else, it's cathartic for me to keep exercising my thoughts in public and putting words into cyberspace. Um, But it's very frustrating at times because, you see, the conundrum is that the older you get, the more you see, but the less people want to to hear what you've got to say. That's true. Uh, And uh, one reason why I do do this, I mean, uh, I may not look it, but I am 87 years of age. Wow. And uh, I, I like to make a statement that you shouldn't write people off uh, because of their age. Um, and if I do nothing else, I'd like to make that statement. And I've got a quote in my book, which is from T.S. Eliot, and that is, "You see the world, for, you see the world where you started, but you see it for the first time." And uh-huh. that's where I think I am. That. I don't see the world now as I saw it when I was 20 or 30 years of age. Um, in many ways, I'm still the same guy, but in many ways, I've got a, 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 a better knowledge. Part of it is due to my wife. You see, when I was young, I thought the world was a rational place. Now, that was an act of stu- That was stupid. The world is, the, world, the world is not rational. The world is, is super irrational. And now my wife, you see, she went. She actually has had a very good career in her own right, yeah. and there's a there's a there's some lessons to be learned from my wife as well as from from my life. My wife got a general degree, oh. uh, and in that general degree there was psychology, and psychology. Now I got a, a degree in law. There was no psychology in it. I wish there had been, because I wish I'd understood what makes people tick. Of course, yeah. Right. And I think it helps to know what makes people tick. Definitely. The undercurrents and what people, they're not always rational because they're, they're looking at things from their own standpoint and they're projecting out over. For often, the, the great problem is that a lot of people project out over for everybody else what they want for themselves. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. That, that, but that's another thing as well. But meanwhile, my wife, you see, is a much better lawyer than me. And she, she now, now I'll explain that one to yeah. you. The, the, the thing is that, she, she, you see, I'm actually, uh, uh, as my life has unfolded, um, I've been a money-making machine, much to my surprise. Um, so it, it wasn't critical that she should be earning money, but she would have, she could have if she needed to. Now, what happened with her was that she got her satisfaction by working in the Citizens Advice Bureau. Um, and she got a spell very, very interested in disability rights. Now, the Sunderland Citizens Advice Bureau had a tribunal unit where they were representing people in tribunals claiming disability benefit. Now, there's a myth that you don't need lawyers in tribunals, but you do, because tribunal decisions of tribunals are based upon regulations and precedent and so on, and it helps to have some legal knowledge. So my dear wife decided that she'd get herself a law degree, and she gets a law degree in Newcastle part-time, and she uses this to advantage in the tribunal unit. She actually also becomes a wing member uh, of a tribunal unit as well. But with the aid of that law degree, she gets over a million pounds for her clients in benefit. Now, why why she is in fact a better lawyer than me, I tend to scan a bit. She looks at every little piece of paper, every single line. Now, if you're going to be a lawyer, you need to have a bit of that. And, of course, that's one of the reasons why I'm very pleased that I departed the the active profession, you see, because she has that ability, which, frankly, I don't have. I have other things, maybe. But, uh, But at all events, that's what she's been doing with 
her life apart from other things that she's been doing. And uh, and again, she's been very. She's my social secretary. We have we have a very very nice sort of life with uh, the cultural side of our life. We absolutely love music. We haven't talked about that very much. No, not yet. But I've got to tell you that that's another world which is very, very valuable. And it's a shame not to have it open to you to explore. Um, What we're lucky about in Newcastle is the Sage Gateshead. I don't know whether you know about the Sage Gateshead. No, tell me. Well, the Sage Gateshead... Uh, was designed by Norman Foster, who was the top architect uh, in the UK. Now, Gateshead Local Authority, a Labour authority, I hasten to say, has been absolutely inspired. It's an authority that has had vision over the years. And one piece of vision was actually putting into Gateshead a a, a centre for music, and there are two concert halls in the Sage Gateshead. One holds 1,600 and the other holds 450. Um, it, the main orchestra there is called the Royal Northern Symphonia Orchestra. Uh, it was originally the Northern Symphonia, but because it's so good, it's now called the Royal Northern Symphonia Orchestra. Um, but it, essentially, as a center for music, it doesn't just limit itself to classical music. And when you go there, all sorts of music are there. And not just music. You get someone like Simon Reeves turns up or Joanna Lumley turns up there or they have conferences there. It is the most wonderful center for activity. Now, when I was young, one of the reasons why I wanted to get out of the Northeast was because Gateshead was a dead end. Well, now Gateshead is incredible because it's got the sage. It's also got the Baltic Arts Center. It's got the Millennium Bridge. It's got it's got more to come as well, all being well when this COVID virus is over. Yeah, it's got on top of that. It's got the Angel of the North. It's got, you know, it's got it, it pioneered the Metro Center as well. So I've got to say there's a lot of buzz in the Northeast and I enjoy being where there's buzz. Um, And so culturally, we've got music and we've got a very nice relationship with the sage, Gateshead, and some of the people. We know personally some of the people who play in the orchestra. Um, And then on top of that, there's the theatre world in the Northeast, which is also very good. Um, And uh, we've got... Oh, I mean, the great news there is that the government has come up with a very big package to protect the arts in the last 24 hours. And that is wonderful news because there was an awful lot of worry around as to whether these places were going to survive. But I'm absolutely delighted that their future is really guaranteed by the amount of money that's been made available to them. And it's really, I don't know where they're going to get the money from, but they're going to get it. (laughs) I I don't have to worry about that. Uh, But all I can tell you is that that it's good. It's really, really is good news. Um, Anyway, I think I've been talking a bit too much for. No, I loved it. You, I loved you, hearing you, all. I love hearing you, all the stories. And... You, you can, you can ask. You better. You know, come on, your turn to fire a few more questions. <laughs> okay, sure. So, okay, I had a chance to go on your website and have a read of literally most of the things that you have on here. Most of, one of the things that came up always was your playwriting. And I wanted you to be able to speak a bit more about your playwriting and also give advice to any young people who are looking to be a playwright. What advice would you give them in in playwriting? Well, I learned in playwriting that um, you need a story. Of course. That you can't write a play without a story. And... I then learned um, that when you've written the play, you need to have a rehearsed reading of it. You don't put a play straight on the stage. Yes. You get people to read it and act it out. 
um, in, just by reading it, uh, maybe playing two or three parts. And then the other thing that you need is a dramaturg. Um, I got this um, director when it came to the actual performance of the play, and um, the startling thing about that was that um, when I met him, he said to me, you've got to cut your play by a third. A third? And I thought, my God, that's terrible. But in fact, he was absolutely right. Because it's amazing that what you can do uh, if you cut things out and just, in fact, talk about the things you were going to put on the uh, uh, into your play. You can just yeah. talk about them in, in much shorter time than and enact them and a shorter play is better than a longer play really so what i'm saying is you've got to be sufficiently humble uh, that's what i think I it like amounts that. to like to accept good advice from professionals i mean that's a that's a good principle in life anyway how do you take um, criticism um alan how do you, well, how do how does criticism work with you so if someone comes along and they say okay alan you have this book and i'm going to tear it apart how do you feel when someone literally dissects what you've just created i listen to criticism I, I like or that. just as much as when I'm saying, when I was there was I, going back to my furniture business, yeah. I'd actually produced a very beautiful furniture shop, all complete with a, a furnished bungalow and a coffee lounge and, uh, and a lighting room and a kiddies play area. And I'd employed a, an interior designer to do all these things. And then somebody comes to me and says, you're wasting your time. Yeah. Right? And he was right. Because it was not what people wanted. Yeah. People didn't want my designs. They didn't want my choice of furniture. You know what they wanted? Go on, Alan. They wanted two things. They wanted a bargain. Yes. Because most people want a bargain. That's true. Right? And the other thing they wanted was good service. Ah, uh, Yes. And a bit of advice as well. And that's what is, was the formula that, that I offer to people. But it wasn't being clever for people. And I was certainly prepared to listen to advice. And that's part of it. I think it's very important to listen to advice. It really is. Um, I mean, even today, um, when I do some writing, uh, I mean, just in the last 24 hours, I'm writing something for my website. And I thought it was quite good stuff. And I I happened to get, in LinkedIn, I happened to get a, 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 a relation, a, a get a link to somebody that I know by accident. Um, so I send him a copy of this thing and he tells me what he thinks about it. And it's not totally flattering. So, so I say to him, I've got to back to the drawing board. He then writes to me another thing. He said, I've gone over it again. Actually, it's not bad. <laughs> uh, so I've got back to him and said, well, you may think it's not bad, but I think you were right first time. <laughs> and I've actually I've, I've rewritten it. So, but that's me. And usually when I write something, I'm very critical of myself. Never yes. mind. I think that's the other thing that you've got to, you, you know, don't think that because you put something, if you're writing something, don't think because you've written it down, it's 100% right first time round. I rather think, I mean, this is, of course, the great thing today, that if it wasn't for computers, I'd be sitting around surrounded by paper in my waste paper basket, <laughs> because I'd be forever tearing it up, putting it in and starting all over again. Oh, dear. Well, 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 the wonderful thing today is copying and pasting. Ah, oh, oh, wow. It's a dream. It's a, it's a joy. Yeah. And cutting and pasting. So, as I say, the, 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 it, the, what is remarkable today, uh, the, 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 the opportunities that you've got for writing are so much easier now than they ever were. And I, the other thing, to be honest with you, uh, I mean, I, I'm being very honest with you, my wife has been enormous help to me. You see, I went to the Bede Grammar School for Boys in Sunderland, a grammar school, but I didn't learn grammar. She, I was not very good at grammar. My sentences were too long. The commas were in the wrong place. 
<laughs> my spelling wasn't all that good anyway. Um, well, as time has gone by, my dear wife, who had a different sort of education than me, she, she she's no longer all that interested in what I write anyway. So I've lost the chance now. <laughs> I'm on a kind of a plateau. Uh, but the plateau is a better plateau than I was on in the first place anyway. So... But now I've learned to keep my sentences shorter, to put the commas more or less in the right place. And uh, so my writing is better, but I still tweak what I write. And if I send an email to send a bit of text, as like as not the following day, I'll be sending another email saying, I've, I've done it again, so you better have a look at it again, or if you've read it, read it again, or something like that. Because I think that's what you should do if you're writing. I don't think you should ever rest on your laurels. I think you should keep on writing. And what, I, I listen to other people who write. And for people who take writing very seriously, I mean, I take it seriously, but not as a real professional. The professional will be writing every day. Uh, and I've got a friend of mine, well, his relation, actually. He's in the civil service, um, who's told me last night he wants to write a novel. So I get on the, I start Zooming in with him, and I say, well, I'll give you some advice about that, that if you're going to write a novel, and I'm, I've got this on very good authority, largely because of somebody I know who started out as a little accountant in, in, in Manchester and ultimately he owned Dylan's bookshops before he actually went over the top and was, you know, he, he lost it. But never mind. At one stage, he owned Dylan's, and he also has done some writing himself. And what he said, which is, which is worth anybody who thinks that they're going to write, needs to bear in mind what I'm about to say. And that is this, that a publisher is not really interested in your first novel. That's true. The publisher is interested in your second, third, and fourth novel. That's where he will make his money. So it isn't good enough just to write a novel. If you have, I mean, the, the, the Archer's Clifton Chronicles yes, shows how you can sustain it. Grisham is another one. My God, I enjoy Grisham's books. Um, and the, the, because there's continuity, you go from one to the next to the next. And that's what publishers love. So if you're going to start writing, that's what you should be thinking about. Um, but I'm only dabbling, if you like, and, and uh, as, a, as a substantial hobby more than anything else. But even though it's a substantial hobby, you've done really well. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> I'll accept the compliment. I've, I've got to tell you this while I'm on this. I've written a play which has never been performed, and I'd love it to be performed. It actually is a, is a serious play. It's a, developed out of the play that I wrote. Um, and essentially, I'm very interested in religious matters. We've not talked about religious matters. As I said, uh, I'm, I, I don't... Well, let me, let me exactly tell you where I am in religious matters. I believe in God, but I can't pray to him. Yeah. Right? But I, I, my relationship with with God is through man. That's my relationship with God. Um, and my great sadness is that religions over the centuries have been fighting with each other instead of, instead of rejoicing, each of them rejoicing that they've found a way to God. And my view is that one thing that could unite faiths in that is music, because you can listen to a piece of music and it's there. Uh, What's your you favorite piece of music, Alan? What but, is your What is your favorite piece of music? Well, I mean, I like I like all sorts of music. So, uh, but in this instance, just stay with this for the minute. Mm -hmm. um, I, I I think that you can hear Paul Robeson singing a piece of spiritual music. You can hear Tibetan monks. You can hear a bit of Sufi music. You can hear Schindler's List, for that matter. Mm -hmm. You can hear music or the Col Nedre. You can hear a piece of music and you can sense God's presence. Or you can hear some music in a cathedral. And, and, and again, you feel God's presence. Now, in my play, this is a play which I think, as I say, I'd love to have it performed. There's, the real debate is going on between the people who believe and the people who don't believe. Because that's where the interesting thing is, you see. And the 
this uh, the, in the play, I've got a I've created a Pentecostal black music teacher ah. who believes that God is a woman, right? I kind of do too. Well, there you are. Anyway, and she, in fact, wants to give music and spiritual music to her class. The only trouble is that in the class there's a boy who's an atheist. And not only is he an atheist, but his father's an atheist. And he doesn't think that she should be doing this at all. She would rather she wasn't in the school at all. So there's a right confrontation between the parent of that kid and the head teacher. And the head teacher has to persuade him not to complain to the governors that this woman is exceeding her remit. And she succeeds. Now, how does she succeed? The answer is that what he says, what the head teacher says to the parent, is this: You know who's going to lose out if she's not there? Who's going to be the the big casualty? Your son, because she loves he loves arguing the toss, and she will never persuade him to be anything other than atheist. So it's not doing it. It's not doing him any harm at all. And, fa and he says, well, I suppose you're right. So at the end of the day, she keeps her job. Uh, but anyway, there it is. Uh, everyone is a mountain to climb, I think, is the, uh, is the uh, name of that play. I think I'd I love should to come in it. your play. If you, can get, if you can get that play performed somewhere, I think it would be very good on the radio, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Now, the, the other great thing about my play is that when it was put on, Kids with special needs actually had a part in the play. Yes, I saw. It wasn't just professional actors. And uh, the Max Lewis was absolutely brilliant. He got the biggest laugh going when he said that the head teachers was bonkers. <laughs> and, and, you know, so let's say this is, I've had a lot of fun along the way with this thing. And uh, that's what I commend about life. Life is there to be lived. It's there's a lot in it, and just go for it. Yeah. is the answer. Just Most go definitely. for it. And well, the other word phrase that I like very much is life is interesting on the margins. That's true. Don't just do the predictable things. The bits of luck I've had, I've had some incredible luck along the way, but the luck has come by accident, not by design. I haven't got, you don't, you don't look for luck. Luck finds you. That's true. And you've got to be there. I mean, I had a visit to America uh, to, just because I'm in America, if you like, and I end up at a, uh, seeing a friend who says, look, there's a management horizon seminar in Columbus, Ohio. Do you fancy going over to Columbus, Ohio? Like going over to Geneva for the day for a seminar. And I said, well, we're not doing anything here. We may as well go. <laughs> and that's when I hear about Toys R Us. And then oh. I hear that Toys R Us are opening in the Gateshead Metro Center. And I say, well, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Yeah, why so not? So we opened up next door. And that was a great piece of good luck. And, and, and you know, I just say yes to, to doing things and it's life is all the better for it if you do so anyway i commend that as well all right oh, i love that that's so cool yeah. <laughs> yeah what would you say to your younger self alan if you had to start again is there anything that you would change is there anything that you would make better well, because you, you sound see, like you've space. had a wonderful life i think you've understood what i'm saying yeah that, that, that life is a journey and for me, I've been very lucky yeah. because I describe it as my life as building bricks. I don't actually um, regret anything that I've actually done in my life, even though a number of things were absolute dead ends. Um, I'm glad I went to the bar, even though it was a disaster, really, because I was young, I was immature, I was not earning any money. And, and frankly, the way the bar works... I mean, I was well out of it, if you really want to know. <laughs> I mean, the bar is a, is a perilous existence because it's yourself employed. If you're not earning, you, there's no, you know, there's one barrister who was a very able barrister and he became ill. And if, you know, and, and that's terrible news if you're a barrister, if you're seriously ill. So um, being a barrister is a scary 
life. I mean, there's some people, I've got some very good friends who are extremely successful, become judges and goodness knows what in their career. But it's a scary life. But I don't begrudge I'm going down that road to begin with. And I'm jolly pleased I got out of it. And again, my 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 love of the Liberal Party. Well, at one stage, it was, I used to say, half my life was politically active. I stood as a parliamentary candidate at one stage in my life, lost my deposit like the rest of us. And that was the way, the way it was. Uh, but I met some good friends then, and those have been friends to this very day. I met in Manchester some wonderful people there who were an inspiration to me. Um, and so, you know, I found people who were well motivated and so on. So I don't begrudge that either, even though I don't belong to any political party today. Uh, I'd, I'd just rather live in limbo land, if you like. Um, it's and, not a bad uh, place. And that's where I am. And uh, but but I, so it, so if if you ask me what I would say to my younger self, yeah. I'd say, do it again if you can do it better. <laughs> Good luck to you. What is the best money you've ever spent on a book? Oh, God. You're asking the wrong person. It's my wife. Where's your wife? Where's your wife? <laughs> the best money I spent on a book. Um, well, I'm just wondering what I've got here. Um, I think that in... in um, oh, God. Um I wouldn't know the answer to that. I'm going to deny that one. There you are. Move on. You're going to deny it. You're going to deny it. I mean, there is a book. I'm not, my memory isn't all that wonderful uh, when it comes to this sort of thing. Anyway, I suppose on a desert island disc, I'd say the Bible, but I wouldn't say the Bible. The Bible. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say because because Gideon would probably come up with one instead. So um, I don't <laughs> need to think about that. Probably Gideon would put a book on the Bible, on a desert island. Hey, so. Here's one that I think you can help people with. The here's one. Here's a question that I think you can help people with. Define what success means and define it in a way that what it means to you, because everybody has a different definition of what success means to them. But what does success mean to you? Because you've done so much in your life. Here's my wife. That's yeah. success. I like that. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. That's Savior. Who? Savior. Hi. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, 50 years is success. Oh, wow. 52 years. Oh, no, you got it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) 52 years. No, I'll I'll answer your question. Uh, I think that that if you feel comfortable in your own skin, I think that's extraordinarily important. Um, I think, I think again, being very serious, um, I think the British education system has got it terribly badly wrong, uh, because what they've gone and done is they've said everybody should have equal opportunity to get to university and they've put people into mainstream comps to give them an equal opportunity to go to university. But only half of them are going to get there. Now, what about the other half? Now, they're, in a sense, they've failed. And I think that that's a shame because you shouldn't go through life feeling that you've failed. But in a kind of a way, it's almost inevitable that they must feel that they've failed. Now, as I say, I think that if, I mean, this is what I think, going back to Ashley Ritchie Watts, this girl, um, she's not sort of achieved anything academically, but she is, but for all her disability, and for all that she's in a wheelchair, she is very comfortable in her own skin. She doesn't yeah. feel sorry for herself. I think it's awful if people feel sorry for themselves. I think it's awful if people are forced to do jobs that they don't really like. They've got to do what they're told um, because it's their job. It's where their earnings 
their living comes from. I think that's just a shame. I've been very lucky that I've been able to do my own thing. Now, admittedly, I was very lucky because I I didn't have a standing start. Some people start from nothing. But I've met people who've actually started from nothing and done extremely well. I had, I've had two or three friends who actually, um, their parents worked in the shipyards in Sunderland. And one became a judge. Another one, in fact, worked for Financial Times and then got involved with the World at War series on television and so on. Uh, and he made a great success of his life. And I've met a few people who, from a, a very much of a standing start, were able to do great things with their lives and make it meaningful to them. Um, but w you don't have to be a great success story in your life. I mean, there are people who worked in my company. I mean, I'll tell you one little story, which, in a sense, my telling it puts me to shame in a kind of a way, but it's, but it's got a moral to it. There was a, there was a guy in the company who worked in the warehouse and um, he was a yobbo, no doubt about that. If he went to a football match, he wouldn't have minded a good scrap. Glass, broken glass, probably not, but anything else could be possible. Anyway, he becomes a skinhead and he shaves his head and he goes into the warehouse and the warehouse manager says to him, you are not going to, to stay like that. You're going to wear a cap until your hair has grown. Right? So this guy wears a cap until, and time passes. And the warehouse manager dies. And I see this young lad. And what does he say to me? He says, I've been visiting the widow of the warehouse manager, which is something that I must say I had never thought of doing myself. Now, that tells you a story in all sorts of ways. Now, that guy stayed with the company and became a van driver within the company had his own family and had a very meaningful life and I've seen him since and he, he just glows as a human being. A thoroughly, thoroughly nice guy. So he's not made any great records for himself in life but he's had a life which, in my view, he, he, he illustrates what I'm saying about being comfortable in your own skin because I think he is very comfortable in his own skin. And that's why I think if when you ask me what success is, I don't attach it to money, although obviously it, it helps. I attach it to other things. And from my point of view, the other thing, obviously, we have a very lucky, we have friends. And the real richness of our life is in our friends. Um, and that's, I think it's a shame if you haven't got the time to to make friendships and develop them. So uh, that again, but you've got to work on them. And my wife is very good. You know, my wife keeps a note of all the birthdays oh. uh, and, and, and doesn't make sure I don't forget them. She reminds me to send a letter today to somebody who's just lost his wife. Oh. So the, it's the little things that yeah, count it's true. in life. Very often, the little things that count um, and, 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 and are very meaningful. Yeah. Well, most definitely. What advice would you give to people who feel, I know we've spoken a little bit about it, but what advice would you give to people if they are feeling lost or sad or don't have the support or means to be able to do what they do? What advice would you give them to help them to stay positive and to keep going? Oh, gore. Um, that's a difficult one. Um, I think that loneliness is terrible. Uh, I think that if anybody is lonely, um, I think you need to have somebody you can share your problems with if you can find somebody who will be sympathetic and listen to you. Uh, you know, problem shared is a problem halved, if you like. Uh, and uh, so, as I say, I think that somebody just sitting on their own 
that's terrible, uh, facing a, a difficulty in their lives. And uh, but there are people around. There are counsel. There are bereavement counselors around who are trained to react. There's a, there are a lot of people around today uh, who are very, very good. I think the other thing is that mental illness is now recognized as never before, as something not, not to feel ashamed about. But again, there are, there are people who are trained. We've got a very good friend who is qualified uh, to give advice, uh, and she does this uh, via her GP. Um, and uh, I know she's kept fairly busy these days. So I think you discuss it with your GP to begin with and find a lead, somewhere to go to, um, social work of some sort. Um, and it's, 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 I know it's difficult, and I'm very sympathetic, obviously, to anybody today because um, the, the, the mass being pulled out of other people's lives. The other thing which I, I'm bound to say having been married for 50 years, that I think it's a great shame when marriages break down. Yeah, I um, agree with you. And I use the sentence in my play, I think, I think I give it to the head teacher in the play, that it's a shame if people, it's a life, marriage is a journey, and it's a shame if you get off at the first stop. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to work at life. I mean, We've got no kids, for example. Yeah. Now, at the time, it was a sort of a disappointment to us not to have kids. It wasn't we didn't want it. We we, we wouldn't have, have we, you know, we, we hoped that we would have kids. We didn't arrive. Um, but um, the fact is that we had to work through it. And I'm very, very pleased indeed that we did work through it. And, um, and so... Um, we, we've compensated for it, if, if, if you like, in all sorts of different ways. And now, when other people are celebrating their grandkids and their and all the rest of it, I know. I think my mother. I've never talked about my mother very much, um, but my mother um, must have been very disappointed that she didn't have grandchildren, um, and we just had to live with that. Uh, but. Um, the, you, you, there are certain things that come as disappointments along the way. Don't, but but I think it's a great shame for the for the next generation uh, if you don't try and make a marriage work if you possibly can, and and it and you have to work at it. I sometimes say in relation to myself and my wife that we've committed bigamy together because we're both we're both different people from the people we married. The fa the, the the lucky thing is that when we're closer together now than we were before. Yeah. But I know for some people it springs the other way and they spring apart. Um, but everybody has to work their own solutions to their own problems. There's no simple formula to life. We're not given with a simple formula which you simply apply. You have to work at it yeah, yourself. That's true. I agree with you totally. Finally, Alan, where can we find you on social media if anyone would like to contact you? Well, I have a website yes. which is www.deathofanightingale, all one word, dot com. www.deathofanightingale.com. And it's got a blog in it as well. Yes. And, and all I can tell you is, I must warn you, that I have verbal diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> in a good way, guys. In a good I think, way. I think, the, I think the word is rant. So if you want a good rant, read what I write. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And I hope, as I say, I'm really writing for the future, for the young generation to get some benefit out of my experience of the world. And it's there for the taking as far as I'm concerned. Oh. And I hope people will enjoy reading what I write. No, that's perfect. Alan, thank you so much for coming on the Yes People podcast. You've been a great guest. Well, it's been a joy meeting you. And, uh, and he, I think you've exhausted me anyway. So there's nothing, <laughs> you've drained me dry, I think. <laughs> so anyway, there you are. Wish you well. And, I wish, and good luck to you in what you do too. Oh, thank you so much, Alan. Guys, thank you okay. so much for listening to the Yes People podcast. And please remember, you can subscribe to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify and any other platform that you prefer. Please also follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And remember, you can donate to the Us People podcast by simply going to the Savio Rocks website or just simply typing in paypal.me forward slash Us People podcast. Thank you for listening. Stay happy, stay positive and as always, continue to be kind to one another.